June of 2020, our class had its first session. Reading classic novels soon became our one obsession. With COVID-19 raging, we had nowhere we could go. So we zoomed in and recorded this stupid fucking show. We're reading books. We're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, stop it, please. We're reading books. We're killing cedars. And Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Charlotte is our teacher and she's very optimistic that she can teach us something, even something quite simplistic. She's really quite an expert, has a dog named Mr. Darcy. But if she thinks we can learn, she's got her head right up her arsey. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, Stop it, please, we're reading books. We're killing cedars at Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Daniel plays with puppets, which is just a little weird. He also is Canadian and has a luscious beard. Jerry has just graduated university, so she's the baby of this podcast, don't you see? Andrew is the oldest and has trouble concentrating. He thinks he's pretty funny, but his sense of humor is grating. A doctor, so she knows things quite obscure, but her degrees in agriculture, so she mostly knows me more. We're reading books until we're sore. My eyes! We're answering Miss Charlotte and competing for a score. Ask us why we're doing this, we really couldn't say. But listen and just maybe you'll enjoy it anyway. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, Stop it, please. Oh, we're And welcome to Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers, a podcast about reading old-timey books. This is episode six, The Fairy Cave and 20 Other Queer Places. Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers is an audio production of the Oklahoma Theatre Group, or YTG, a non-profit theatre company based in Japan. If you want to support the theatrical work we do, you can head over to ytg.jp and click the support button. I think that was just two breaths, guys. Next time, I'll do it in one. Uh, on this show, we have four readers, including myself. Each episode, we sit down, talk about the week's assigned chapters, put our phones on mute, <laughs> make presentations, which we call reader responses, and answer questions to compete for... Wait for it. Points! Our teacher, the giver and taker, and calculator of points, and she who constantly freaks us out by taking 40-second pauses mid-thought, is the giant-brained Miss Charlotte. The reader with the most points at the end of the show will be dubbed Teacher's Pet, and the reader with the lowest score, sometimes in the negative numbers even, will wear the dunce cap. It is only an imaginary dunce cap, but it is a dark shade of magenta and has a loudspeaker on it that blares dumbass, dumbass at 80 decibels every four and a half minutes. When we complete our reading of Wuthering Heights, all these points will be totaled, and the winner will get... Meh. We'll figure it out. If you have any suggestions about what we can give the person who has the most points at the end that doesn't cost a lot of money or maybe any money, feel free to email us at readers at ytg.jp. I will now introduce our cast in order of immaturity. Literally, the least mature mem member of our cast is Judy Ito, having made the journey down the birth canal nearly a decade after any of the rest of us, I think. Uh, Judy is the assistant artistic director of the Yokohama Theatre Group, but is also gainfully employed at a Japanese company, so we're glad she finds the time to join us when she's not pouring drinks for everyone else at the Nijikai. 
I guess that's one of the upsides of COVID nineteen, <laughs> huh? It's a it's an international company. Right. Uh, okay. Well, forget all the time I spent writing that intro. Then, next up, <laughs>、uh, although I I am technically the oldest member of the cast, being a member of the Silent Generation and having lived through the Great Depression, I am also probably the least emotionally mature.、Uh, and I have been told I also have the the palate of a tw- of a twelve year old. My name is Andrew Wilner, and I am the artistic director of YTG and the editor and producer of the show, which is why they have to let me talk. Following hot on my heels is Daniel Wishes, puppeteer and podcaster.、Hello. He, he, there he is. He just can't resist making jokes about the Sunday comics, which seems to throw Miss Charlotte into a tizzy every goddamn time. Have you learned your lesson yet, Daniel? Broomhilda. <laughs> I mentioned that Daniel is a podcaster. You can check out his other show, Weird Movie Club, wherever fine podcasts can be found. Daniel, you're my favorite slow learner. <laughs> Uh, trying to decide between our two mature podcast members has been difficult, and you might think I'd save Dr. Emmy Doe for last, but no, no one who spends hours running on purpose can truly be called mature. So allow me to introduce her next.、Um, Emmy is a woman of many talents and holds the record for teacher's pet. I think you've been the teacher's pet what, like three times now?、Uh, And we're on episode six, so Jesus, stop making the rest of us look bad. I should also point out, as of the time of this recording, Emmy has not slept because she was running all night last night. <laughs> Uh, right in circles, in circles, as she just told us. And finally, the most mature person on the show, Miss Charlotte Sampson, Victorian literature expert, miniature poodle aficionado, and the only person I know who has sleep apnea while fully conscious. I'm talking about those 40 second pauses. Are you ready to teach us some Wuthering Heights? That was not a rhetorical question. Sorry, I was doing a passive aggressive <laughs> pause. <laughs> also. Just for the record, Mister Darcy's a standard poodle, not a miniature poodle. This is nothing against miniature poodles, but he is, however, on the small end for standard poodles. He's like fifty pounds, whereas standard poodles can get up to like seventy. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. I'm also in Japan. Every poodle I see is a bloody miniature. People like dogs the size <laughs> of rats here. It's so weird when you see a big dog. You're like, what? What was there a bear? Um, all right, everyone. Let's get reading. Today we were going over chapter seventeen through nineteen, and let's see. First on the agenda, we usually have Daniel do the synopsis. Do you have one prepared for us? And are you going to do your little game in this one, where you make an intentional mistake for us to to, to catch out? Or so I, just so so listeners know before we start into this this game that's going to make like the rest of us look pretty dumb again this time. Um, this time, I should note we have we were supposed to record like a week ago. We usually have just a few days between reading and, and sometimes just a few minutes between reading and going on air. This time, most of us have read the chapters. I think last week, so this is going to be interesting. Chapter seventeen. Nellie has converted the parlor into a nursery so she can take care of little Kathy. Isabella shows up, laughing her head off. She's in rough shape, bruised and bleeding. Isabella throws her wedding ring into the fire. She tells Nellie what happened. Hindley didn't go to Kathy's funeral because he got drunk. While Heathcliff is out, Hindley makes plans to kill Heathcliff with his knife gun. When Heathcliff returns, Isabella warns him of Hindley's murderous intentions, and refuses to let him into the house. When Hindley tries to shoot Heathcliff out the window, Heathcliff grabs the knife gun from him and shoots back. Heathcliff climbs in the window, presumably singing. Hindley, it's me, Heathcliffy. I've come home and I'm so cold. Let me enter your window. 
Then Heathcliff beats the ever-loving shit out of Hinley. Isabella runs away to Thrush Cross Grange. Later, Isabella moves to Gimmerton and gives birth to Heathcliff's son, Linton. Hinley dies six months after Kathy. Possibly murder or possibly suicide. Nellie goes to take care of the funeral arrangements and finds out that Heathcliff has taken over Wuthering Heights and refuses to give up Hareton or he'll go take little Linton from Isabella. Chapter 18 Time passes and little Kathy becomes a little 13-year-old full of whimsy and imagination and is sheltered from all the evils of Wuthering Heights. Heathcliff and the Outside World Edgar finds out that Isabella is dying and goes to her. But before he leaves, he tells Nellie, Whatever you do, don't let little Kathy leave the Grange to look for the fairy caves in Peniston Crags. As soon as he leaves, Nellie lets little Kathy leave the Grange <laughs> to look for the fairy caves in Peniston Crags. Little Kathy ends up discovering Wuthering Heights and meets Harridan. They hang out and have some whimsical adventures. Little Kathy is horrified, but also confused when she discovers that Harridan is not the son of the Master of Wuthering Heights, but also not a servant, and also somehow her cousin? But wait, she already <laughs> has a cousin. Oh, wait, you can have more than one cousin? All right. Later, Nellie says to little Kathy, what do you say we play a little game called, please don't tell your father about any of this? <laughs> Chapter 19. Little Kathy is super excited that her dad is returning to Thrushcross Grange with Little Linton. But when he gets there, Little Linton is all sickly and gross and ew. Little Kathy tries to take care of him like a baby. But then Joseph shows up with a stick and demands that they give him Little Linton to take back to Heathcliff. Edgar doesn't want Heathcliff to have his sister's child. So he's like, no, you can't have the boy um, in until tomorrow and then we'll send him over. Can you find the error I purposefully made in the in the synopsis to play this game with you? Andrew. Yes. Uh, Isabella doesn't move. She goes to Gimmerton on her way out, but she moves to somewhere near London. Yeah, that was it. Because Gimmerton is just too silly a name for anyone to actually live there. Gimmerton. But this is this is Yorkshire. Uh, yeah, I'm going to do vocab corner. We need to come up with a better name for this. Um, I don't have so much this time, so this is great. Uh. Basically, uh, screen is in protect comes up once. Uh, someone says, you mustn't trouble yourself to screen me, and it just literally means protect me. It's I only know that because I read a lot of like military historical fiction, and screening is something like you do when you're defending part of your army. Um, yeah, I'm a historical fiction nerd. Gurned came up it just me it's a it's I think it's a I think it's a, another dialect thing because they mentioned that Joseph would uh, Joseph would say it. But it means to complain, snarl, or grimace. So I'm assuming snarl, grimace, because it's when it's used when Heathcliff is like trying to come through the window. <laughs> so I imagine he's doing a bit of like, "Here's Johnny." Casement and stanchions. It's, I've heard these words so many times. I decided to finally look them up. Casement is just a window that they're hinged, wind, like a window that's hinged and opens on the, from the side. And stanchions are just posts. So presumably it's either that window has kind of bars on it to stop burglars from getting in or just it's kind of a small window and there's a there's a the thing where the where the window joint the two flaps the window close in the middle like a post that heathcliff is just too big to get through peevish just means cross fretful or ill-tempered i'm just gonna just the dictionary for that something i didn't get so miss charlotte if you can figure this one out uh ribboned oh no i did figure this one out it's just it's just an old-timey way of saying ribbon mm -hmm. It took me a while to figure that one out. 
Riband. It sounds like, you know, Ribena or something. But I guess you don't tie Ribena. That would be really messy. No, nobody. Okay, nobody knows where Ribena is. Okay. All right. The British listeners will get that, I think. That is it. So next up, we got the reader report. I think, Judy, I think it was you, wasn't it? Yeah, it was me. Me writing 10 year old Judy Diary. Oh. Um, so it was hard to write from the point of view of exactly me. So the setting is I'm Nellie's niece in Lockwood's timeline. So like I snuck up to wherever the book is and I opened it. Today I sneaked in Aunt Nellie's and found a notebook. I found stories of the family that were really sad. I have never met Isabella, but I always heard she had a miserable life. I wonder why she married Heathcliff. Heathcliff and Henry fought with guns and knives. That's very dangerous. I don't like Heathcliff. Is Heathcliff not a human being? He never gives presents to me, so maybe he is. Poor Kathy. She was never allowed to go play and explore where she wanted. But I think it was not nice to order Hareton around. She acts like a queen so suddenly. And I think she was really stupid at the time. I She thought you can only have one cousin, lol. She describes her cousin Edgar (laughs) as pale, delicate, and effeminate. What does effeminate mean? I feel bad for her. I feel bad for Edgar, though. He did nothing bad, and he seemed so sad when he met Heathcliff. I think Edgar is a better father. He actually cares for Linton and wants to help him get stronger. Maybe Heathcliff isn't a human being. That's it. Thank you very much, Jury. <laughs> now is the time where I give a grade. Mm-hmm. I forgot how ten-year-olds write. <laughs> it, it was seemed a lot more mature than my tenth-grade diary or ten-year-old <laughs> ten, ten diary. I mean, you know, probably my tenth-grade <laughs> diary as well. <laughs> so I do think that you captured the voice. I, I, I don't think you have to worry about that. I, I think that you did a good job of hitting the nail on the head in a way that brought out some of the more salient points uh, in this three-chapter section. I especially like the the cousin comment, <laughs> simply because like that is a little bit absurd, but at the same time, we already know that her life has been so sheltered up to this point that she may very well not realize that there are, in fact, lots of people with multiple cousins all over the place. And, I mean, this is a cousin that she never heard about. There are just so many secrets Mm -hmm. coming out of Wuthering Heights that what seems like it should be absurd that she would grow up not really knowing that she has a cousin who lives just, just... I keep forgetting the distance between Thrushcross Grange and Wuthering Heights. It's like, somebody out there refresh my memory. It's like five miles. I know I said that about Wuthering Heights and Gimmerton, but whatever. It's just, I'm just going to say everything is five miles away. But I, I, I think that the stuff that we need to take away from this set of chapters is covered in your diary entry. Um, 
I was going to give you an A for it, but then you put LOL in there, which is anachronistic, so I'm giving you an A minus. Okay. I will take that. <laughs> Discussion questions. This is where Miss Charlotte asks us questions and we all sort of take this is where we get to take our long pauses when coming trying to come up with the answers. Okay, so my first discussion question, uh, there's going to be a bonus pop quiz element, uh, but there's nothing in there from the text of the of the book. So this is going to be a pop quiz based on how much you already know about your literary critical terms. Oh, this is wait. So you're doing this before the discussion discussion questions? Just 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 roll with it. You'll see what I mean. Okay. It's okay, a okay. bad Sorry, explanation. No. It was awkward. I know. <laughs> Let's just get okay. through it. We'll push through. We'll all move right. on. And we can all get on with our lives. Andrew, in chapter 17, the weather changes after Catherine's death. So we have this quote. That Friday made the last of our fine days for a month. In the evening, the weather broke. The wind shifted from south to northeast and brought rain first and then sleet and snow. On the morrow, one could hardly imagine that there had been three weeks of summer. The primroses and crocuses were hidden under wintry drifts. The larks were silent. The young leaves of the early trees smitten and blackened. Now, there is a particular literary device that we employ when we have weather or other natural phenomena somewhat evocative of the emotional state of someone, or in this case of the narrative itself, so, the mini-pop quiz. Who can tell me what that literary device is called? Andrew. Phallic patheticness. No, I mean, uh, pathetic fallacy. Five points minus two points for the dick joke. <laughs> uh, yes, it's called the pathetic fallacy. Pathetic having more to do with uh, the sense of pathos, the, the sort of original sense of the word. Um, where there is thought to be a sort of sympathy uh, between nature and human emotions. And while nature can sometimes influence human emotions, you know, if it's a rainy, gloomy day, one might feel a little bit down. Uh, the pathetic fallacy is, is more about moments in a narrative or work of literature where the author uses a, a change in the weather as a way to reflect the emotions that, that are already present in the narrative. So it's sort of one coming before the other. Or sometimes it can just be the author brings the weather to the forefront to sort of foreshadow to the reader that, you know, the weather's getting bad, things are about to get really heavy all up here. I mean, just the name, Wuthering Heights, we know that Wuthering is a sort of dialect word for weather, wet weathering, uh, like blustery windiness. So the pathetic fallacy has kind of followed this novel throughout its entirety. So I thought this was a good opportunity to sort of take some time to discuss the pathetic fallacy here. Um, what do you think about the way the pathetic fallacy is used at the opening in chapter 17? Yes, Daniel. Is that... Like the um, the pathetic fallacy. Is that like in Ziggy when he's a bit depressed and he says, at least it's not raining, but then you see storm clouds coming from behind him. I want to give you a penalty for that, but it's kind of apt. 
so yeah, I'll give you three points. Ugh, I feel sort of dirty. But yeah, that's a very simplistic way of, of, of discussing it. But I mean, the, the sort of classic pathetic fallacy is the, the opening to one of Bulwer-Lytton's novels. It was a dark and stormy night. Like, that is sort of, I won't say it's the OG pathetic fallacy. I, I Somewhere out there who's playing the home game, uh, write in to the show, tell us what the earliest literary pathetic fallacy is. I don't know. I Actually, I'm pretty sure that it originates in the prehistoric era, because there was a strip of BC Daniel, where he was on a tablet say, writing a dark and stormy night about BC <laughs> I'm going to I was I'm going to quit the podcast like this, this is this is okay okay it's okay this we're reminds like, me of a Calvin and Hobbes that I think could be helpful in this situation okay we're getting bogged down Daniel does anyone have anything relevant to say about the pathetic fallacy in Wuthering Heights this isn't the first time that it's um, that it's been utilized. Um, Go on. Well, even you know the little passage that you read about the crocuses. Um, they they talked about that earlier when things were on the up and up in Brushcross Grange. You know, like the spring come in and the um, the use of the flowers to kind of like bring um, Kathy out of her spell i guess um and and we talked about jack and stormy night originally when i crudely picked that up as something that kind of felt um in the opening of the novel thank you emmy i'm clearly already gunning for teacher's pet um, so i'll only give you i'll only give you a point for that even though it's probably worth more because I'm feeling very capricious this morning. In some way, you've even got like chapter two, the fact that, I mean, this is, this is very, very loose, but like the fact that you've got a snowstorm and he, he, and, um, Lockwood receives a, a snowstorm comes on as he's receiving a cold welcome at, at Wuthering Heights. Oh, I mean, I don't think that Andrew. is, I don't think that's his, that's not quite the same thing, but there's, I, and I'm, and I'm not sure whether that was meant in that way, or whether it was just the snowstorm, they she like Bron Emily Bronte needed an excuse for him to stay there. But there's certainly that's certainly like like I thought about that at the time. I'll give you a point for that, Andrew, because I do think you're on to something there. I mean, let's consider for a second because this is sort of this is sort of my jam uh, in terms of literary critical style. Uh, I go in for what's sometimes called new historicism, the idea that it's okay to look at the historical context of a work of literature. There, there was a whole critical moment for like most of the 20th century where it was considered taboo in literary criticism to focus too much on the historical conditions of the production of a work, but I'm very into it. And so it's worth noting the materiality of what it means to be given a cold reception and to be all but refused shelter in the north of England, in the winter, on the moorlands, during a snowstorm. Like, the Brontes grew up in that area. It 
could be pretty wild out there. Like, just literally pretty wild. Like, far removed from civilization, stretches of road or of moorland where you could get lost. And if the weather turns bad, you get frostbite, you don't come home. So the fact that one of the first things we see of Wuthering Heights is this hemming and hawing over whether they want to even have Lockwood over. Now, granted, he is being a huge dick at that moment, um, and he sort of invited himself to stay, which nobody wants. But the fact that they are even considering just sending him on his way, that's indicative of how little they esteem human life. Or Lockwood's human life, at the very least, it's it's a very real danger just turning somebody out of your house in a snowstorm, and the readership would have cottoned to that much more than we would. Like, they didn't have, they didn't have fucking what's the name of that like Canada goose jacket? Down jackets. Yeah, it's like what, what's the name of the brand? But I, I can see the logo. Like Arctic goose something with arctic. oh that sounds familiar I, they're all over japan sharp no i don't know this brand yes you do jerry you've seen them all over i do Is yeah it jacket brand yeah yeah if it, everyone where it it's completely mm. unnecessary in japan and everybody has them and they're like a thousand dollars okay it is just canada goose yeah but anyway like huh. planning travel during the winter was something that you had to be pretty careful about. Like, if you're going to take a walk during a snowstorm, you want to make sure that you're not going to die on the way there or back. And the country, as described in Wuthering Heights, uh, and as Emily Bronte would have known, can be pretty inimical to winter travel. Anyway, that's a huge aside, but... Since we're talking about the pathetic fallacy, we might as well come right out and say that in some cases, it may not be as fallacious as we sometimes think it is to bring up the fact that the weather is a certain way. Now, I think that we can still level the claim that it's a sort of too convenient literary device to cause a sudden snowstorm in your narrative, but I mean... Fuck it. Emily Bronte's writing the thing. She gets to have snowstorms whenever she wants, as far as I'm concerned. And it proves a point, so... Five points to Emily Bronte. <laughs> <laughs> Hope she's not the teacher's pet this week. It'll make us all look bad. Anything else we want to say about the pathetic fallacy? I don't know if this is actually... I don't know if this is relevant, but I actually walked um, through like nature in Yorkshire uh, five miles during a snowstorm. It and was, how did it that was, feel? It was scary. <laughs> I was using like my cell phone light. It was really like pitch dark. There's no lights anywhere. Was it and at night? It was at nighttime. Yeah. I couldn't see anything. I was near a river and I couldn't tell where the river was. So I kept, I was with another person. We kept thinking we we're going to fall into the river and it never actually we were actually north of where Wuthering Heights takes place, but even at the coldest, it's still like, it's not like Canada cold. So it was like snowing a lot, but the snow was kind of melting as it hit the ground and it's like very muddy. There's like sheep crap everywhere. Like we're walking through fields. 
Yeah, it was scary. We we survived. That's the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of you did at least. We have evidence that one of you survived. <laughs> no, th- thank you for that. That's a good anecdote to bring to the forefront. I'll give you three points for that. But yeah, it's good to sort of to stop and take stock of the differences in the daily lived lives of people and how that would have certain resonance for the contemporary readership, contemporary to Emily Bronte, that we sometimes don't appreciate. Like, if you show up uninvited at somebody's house during a snowstorm and they turn you out of doors, you might think, well, how rude. But, you know, back then it's like, well, no, I I don't want to be grievously ill or get lost along the way back. I mean, Lockwood does get grievously ill. Probably would have been a lot worse if he'd had to tromp along the moors in the in the middle of the night. Okay, so uh, moving on, Isabella gets the fuck away from Heathcliff. Good on her, but I wanna I wanna talk about this one section when she's when she's telling Nellie about it. It's about half a dozen or so paragraphs down from chapter seventeen. So in the paragraph that begins, I ought and I wish to remain, answered she, to cheer Edgar and take care of the baby um, for two things, and because the Grange is my right home, etc., etc., talks about her breaking with Heathcliff. It is strong enough to make me feel pretty certain that he would not chase me over England, supposing I contrived a clear escape, and therefore I must get quite away. Now this is the part that I want to zero in on that comes next. I've recovered from my first desire to be killed by him. I'd rather he'd killed himself. He has extinguished my love effectually, and so I'm at my ease. I can recollect yet how I loved him, and can dimly imagine that I could still be loving him if... No, no, even if he had doted on me, the devilish nature would have revealed its existence somehow. Catherine had an awfully perverted taste to esteem him so dearly, knowing him so well. Monster. I would that he could be blotted out of creation and out of my memory. Let's get to that. I've recovered from my first desire to be killed by him. I'd rather he'd kill himself. Boy, that's a big line to unpack. So let's unpack it. First of all, what is Isabella saying to Nellie in that statement? Because there's, it's a lot. What she's saying, or or what does it intimate, furthermore, to the readers about the kind of relationship she and Heathcliff had? I'm not sure how I read it when I first read it, but hearing you read it, it, um, I kind of felt like, I kind of felt like what she was saying was that she wanted to, like, lose herself in loving him. Or something. But I don't know if that's how I took it when I first read it. Um, I think when I first read it, I was so busy thinking about the abusive relationship that, um, all I could think, all I could think was that she didn't have enough self identity to be like, to be able to have the strength to leave. But now hearing you say it, I'm like, oh, like it's almost like she wanted to, like that's how she wanted to express her love or something. Um, 
I think you've got something there. I'm going to give you four points for that observation. Um, anyone have anything to add onto that or dispute? Andrew? Yeah, I almost, I think kind of the opposite. It sounds like she, I, maybe because she had loved him so much at the beginning, because she says she ba- that basically wore off after a day is the way she, or or something like that. She says that at some point. Um, I don't know if it's this chapter previous to that, but um, the, or the, like the first time Nellie Dean goes over to Wuthering Heights and Caesar, but she, I think it's more that like, she thinks that the best way of hurting him is for him to kill her and then he'll feel awful about it. But then because she realizes he detests him, that's not going to, that's not going to get her her revenge. Cause at this point she's fixated. She's fixated on revenge mm. and him killing her and feeling bad about it. Ain't going to cut it because he's not going to feel bad about it. Mm. That, that was my, that was my take on it. It's quite, it's, I, I felt it was, this is like, the point being that Isabella has become a much darker character than she was a few chapters ago. She's gone. She's done this like 180, right? And being like all from being innocent to like plotting like the best way to hurt this person who she can't she can't hurt directly. Oh, that's brilliant! Sorry, I'm going to give you another four points for that, Andrew, and we'll we'll see what Daniel has to say, and then we'll 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 come back around to a sort of. To sort of re- maybe reconciling some of Emmy and Andrew's takes on it. But Daniel, what do you have to add? I'm not an expert on relationships, but I think if you're in a relationship like the one that Isabella has with Heathcliff, taking that step where you go from wanting someone to kill you to wanting them to kill themselves, I think is a healthy step in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I think you can replace Dr. Phil now. I was going to say, your other podcast, it's just, this is your new other podcast. <laughs> obvious obvious relationship advice with Daniel Wishes. <laughs> I gave you a point for that, just because in Isabella's case, it it, it kind of is. I mean, it's, it's hard to say that anything about any of the relationships in any part of Wuthering Heights is healthy there seems to be a little bit of toxicity in all of the relationships that we've seen so far i'm sort of drawing a blank as to whether there are any like just just good solid relationships that don't have some aspect of abuse or deception or posturing but it's probably a step forward for Isabella that she realizes, no, she doesn't have to destroy herself in this relationship. That the one who probably needs to be destroyed is Heathcliff. Jury. I have a question. Yeah, so Isabella froze the marriage ring mm-hmm. on, the, in the, on the floor, but then she also says... Uh, there, he shall buy another if he gets me back again. I wondered if she considers that as a possibility, or she's just saying that. I'm going to give you three points for bringing that up, because I think, and this is sort of where I want to give a bit of a synthesis, or, or offer a synthesis, sort of between what Andrew and Emmy were saying, that... 
this is, by the way, a, a bit anachronistic to say so, but I'm getting some big sub vibes off of Isabella in this relationship. <laughs> like the way that she subsumes herself into Heathcliff and just makes herself into this weird sort of sexual creature for him. Like she degrades herself out of this imagined love for Heathcliff sort of in the early days. And then it takes a while, I think, for her to reconcile the just, I mean, let's come out and say it, the sheer thirstiness that she has for Heathcliff with the deplorable way that he is towards her. And so I think, now, again, it's anachronistic to say that Emily Bronte wrote her as a sub or anything like that. Like, that was not a discourse that she had access to. But in terms of just a human dynamic, somebody who self-effaces as a mode of preservation in a highly abusive relationship is, I think that's just kind of a human condition thing. Like, that that transcends history, even if there's no submissive discourse to talk about it. I think the big difference here is that what she's describing is, like, not even Fifty Shades of Grey sub- dynamics but like whole sale abusive relationship like complete destruction of her personality you know all those people who said that 50 shades of gray was a was a toxic and not very generous way of looking at sub dynamics well wuthering heights has that fucking beat in terms of isabella and heathcliff's relationship and i think that what, Andrew, you brought up, that the revenge angle is part of it, too. Those need not be opposing narratives. Like, I think we can both say to some degree that Isabella is so subsumed in Heathcliff, even in her hatred for him, that the best revenge she can think of still involves her destruction. She is so very much under his thumb, and I will suggest sexually, too, because, I mean, they have a baby. They were clearly doing it, even when he was being a monstrous, monstrous dick to her and beating her. It still comes down to her feeling like she has to be the one undergoing the punishment, even if it's so that Heathcliff feels bad. And this break from that pattern of just whatever she does, it being in the context of being a thing for Heathcliff, is she's so done with it here. And I think that, yeah, Daniel, like you were saying, this this is wishing death upon Heathcliff, wishing that he kill himself, is a healthy thing for her at this juncture in her life. Because Isabella, girl, you needed to get out, and I'm so glad you managed to do it. Thoughts? Contradictions? No, you, I mean, you hit on my point. My, I thought the thing in my notes when uh, it talks about her being pregnant, I was like, wait, they were screwing? Like, I, I, I had to go back and I was like working out the timeline. I'm like, wait, this is just not from the one time on their wedding night when he was not being a complete asshole yet, right? Like, they've been doing it this whole time, apparently. Or at least, you know, at least until how many ever many months ago, because she's not you know, she doesn't give birth immediately. Yeah, and like where? Because she's not allowed in his room, so. 
Is it like I mean, the, that that spare room with all the potatoes or whatever? <laughs> That's what I was imagining. <laughs> he leans her over a potato sack. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason that I that I very cheekily, like tongue in cheek, say that Emily was the kinkiest Bronte. Like there were lots of toxic relationships in other uh, Bronte sisters' works, but this one, Emily was fucking out there. It takes the cake in terms of the way that human cruelty intertwines with weird sexual passion. Emily, what was going through your head when you were walking around those moors by yourself? She can't answer. She's dead. <laughs> just dead. She's dead. <laughs> anyway, I, I think we can move on from, from that cheerful note. Um, mm. I realized that, okay, when I was putting my, my discussion questions together, most of them were about chapter 17, just because chapter 17 is so long and so much like stuff, really pithy stuff happens in it. We could almost do just the whole episode on chapter 17 itself, but it's okay. Chapter 18 and 19 are still relatively short, so they, they work. How's Hindley holding up in chapter 17? How's, <laughs> how's poor Hindley doing? Let's let's talk about how Hindley's been doing. Who wants to who wants to get into some Hindley chat? What's 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 in Hindley's life? He finally gets to use his knifey gun, oh. and it doesn't go so well. It uh, goes about as well you you think you know wielding a knifey gun would go. Ah, uh, what a dumbass! Hind Hindley Hindley sort of reminds me of like you know those teenage boys. Like the really weird ones that have like a knife collection, but they also get bullied on the reg every day yeah. in school. And they're like, I have this knife especially for Dwayne. Next time Dwayne gives me shit, I'm going to take out this knife gun and I'm going to stab Dwayne. Like that's, I, I just get really big bullied high schooler energy out of Hindley. Yeah. Actually, the weirdest thing was, is like, you know, I'm imagining Hindley, I'm imagining some guy who's like 45, right? Going, like, he's 27. Well, they, they remark on how young he is to drink himself to death like that. Yes, he died drunk as a lord is the quotation. Just <laughs> a beautiful expression. Drunk as a lord. That's how I want to go. <laughs> it shows you, it shows you even then what, like, less, less rich people thought of lords. It was pretty expensive to drink yourself to death. Any other thoughts on on Hindley? How he's doing? Kenneth, Doctor Mister Kenneth. I, I'm never. I'm always confused whether he's a doctor or Mister. He plays the announcement at like a game. Like he's just kind of like it. It feels like he's goofing around when he when he's talking to Nellie Dean about it. Like when he's telling her that he died. It's like, hey, guess who died? <laughs> I don't know who died. I'll give you a guess. Guess, guess. Come on, guess. Right? Like, it's like, what the f- And this was his friend! Like, Kenneth was his, like, buddy. Yeah, I got the same vibe. He seems gossipy. Like, what the fuck, dude? Like, he's the guy who's sort of been neutral so far, because, you know, he doesn't do much, but, like, it's like, oh, he's the dick, too. Wonderful. But, sorry, that was a bit of a sidetrack, but it, it's connected to Hinley's death, and I was afraid I wasn't going to get another chance to mention it. You know, Andrew, if, if you lived in Yorkshire, you would understand. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot going on. You, you gotta make fun where you can find it. I see. <laughs> Guess who died? Yeah, it's kind of... 
that's actually okay, Daniel. I'm gonna give you a point for that because now I can't. Like I'm, I can, I'm totally picturing Doctor Mister Kenneth. Um, we're just gonna call him Doctor Mister Kenneth from now on. Like, I like that. I can just picture this really dour, like, sort of somewhat bored yet amused Yorkshire doctor. Like, well, Nelly, it's yours and my turn to go into mourning at present. Who's given us the slip now? Do you think? That turned into a little bit of, of, of Liverpool at the end there. But anyway, um, Hindley, I mean, it's kind of no surprise that he's about to die. This, I think, is a low point for Hindley in a way that's, he's kind of hit bottom just as surely as Isabella at this point. No, I was going to say, I thought he was going to die in that scene. I was like, he's going to bleed out and die. Because mm. like... But it's it's actually worse than that. He lives and then he dies like six months later. Oh, Emily Bronte takes every opportunity to deny people a quick death. Like there's there, there's nobody who who gets off easy. But the thing is about about Hinley is that like you kind of you're kind of sympathetic to him throughout this, and then you remember no wait he was a total asshole, right? Like we hated him. He was the bad guy like six chapters back. Do you believe in karmic justice? I, I don't. I mean, I don't really. I still feel sorry for the guy, but like he was also he was also a dick. Like this is, you know, he used to beat Heathcliff. Like this is him getting his comeuppance in a way. I think that throughout the novel, and this might be a uh, Charlotte Sampson hot take TM. Throughout the novel, I think we are somewhat invited to ask ourselves, and this might sound a little bit absurd, but ask ourselves whether Heathcliff is as bad as everyone says he is, or whether some of his badness is blown out of proportion because it's all being reported to us via Nellie Dean. Now, just, just hold on to that thought. And I, I, I'm not saying that Heathcliff is a secret good guy here. I'm not saying that he's, you know, the, 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 the victim in all of this. But I do think that we can, when we have ambiguities like this, like what do we do with the fact that Heathcliff destroys Hindley Earnshaw, knowing full well that Hindley Earnshaw spent Heathcliff's own childhood just, just, knocking him around mercilessly. Like, does that complicate our view of Heathcliff as this sort of consummate villain and ruiner of human happiness? Daniel? I mean, I was actually just kind of thinking, like, if Heathcliff didn't exist in this story, would Hindley's fate have been a lot different would he just not have become an alcoholic anyways and died and, like, shot somebody else with the knife gun? Maybe Joseph? <laughs> Maybe one of the neighbors? Like, I don't think his fate would have turned out a lot differently if Heathcliff wasn't there. That's a good point. Yeah, Daniel, I think that's that, that's a good point. Um, we don't know what Hindley's life would otherwise have been because Heathcliff... And here's kind of where I want to lean in a little bit on the maybe Heathcliff isn't the depraved utter monster that everyone says he is. Still, still kind of, still, still very much a dick and very much ruins people's lives. But 
the way he treats Hindley as far as becoming his creditor is pretty passive. Hindley's the one who is getting into debt, and Heathcliff is, of course, perfectly happy to keep him in debt, which does not speak very well to Heathcliff, but Hindley could very easily have mortgaged Wuthering Heights to someone else, for all we know. It's just that Heathcliff was there and had the money, and admittedly had a very vested interest in holding Hindley by the short and curlies. Uh, pardon my vulgarity. I mean, the romantic view would be that you know, Heathcliff took advantage of the situation in order to, like, sort of protect Wuthering Heights because it, he, because of the of the connection he had to it because of because of uh, the older Kathy, right? Like that. I, I don't agree with that view. I I actually think it's set up for us that Heathcliff is a monster. I think the fact that Nellie's sympathetic to him early on and talks about being sympathetic to him and then changes her tune, like for me, it suggests the authorial intent is that Heathcliff is a monster. I don't necessarily want to tell you that this is how to read Wuthering Heights. What I want to suggest is the possibility of conflicting narratives kind of being what Wuthering Heights is all about. That it is a story where, quite literally, everyone has a story. Everyone has their version of events, and it's filtered through so many layers of narration that asking, you know, who's right and who's got the right idea about who Heathcliff really is, just, I, I feel like the novel does invite that sort of interrogation. With all the time we've spent on chapter 17, we still haven't got to chapters 18 and 19. So I think to sort of discuss both of them together, this is how I'm going to frame the discussion question here. And I'm going a little bit off book. I'm just sort of winging it at this point. So you're suggesting we combine those two chapters into a new chapter, maybe call it chapter 18. No, and minus one point, Daniel, uh, for interrupting my train of thought there, which we know is a bad idea. My train of thought takes long enough to get out of the station as is. In chapter 18, we see our first look at the sort of newly grown and matured Harriton Earnshaw. Uh, and in chapter 19, we see Linton. Linton Heathcliff, why don't we compare and contrast these two characters? For the record, I dislike the term compare and contrast because it's overused in, in teaching English literature, but in this case, eh, that's what we're doing. We're going to compare and contrast what we see of Harriton Earnshaw in chapter 18 and Linton Heathcliff in chapter 19, and imagine your Kathy, little Kathy, little, little Catherine Linton, and in chapter 18, you see this big dumb hunk of an 18-year-old who very kindly shows you around the fairy cave and Peniston Crags. And 20 other queer places. And 20 other queer places. And then you have little sickly Linton Heathcliff, 
who she, you know, pets and pampers because he's so sickly and pathetic. So in your role as little, little Kathy, are you on team Harriton or are you on team Linton? In terms of which cousin you have the hots for? It's an awful question, I know, but we're going to have to get there because that's where the book is going to take us. It, this was not my idea. This was Emily Bronte's idea. Which cousin is going to win the dating game? And what what ways does the text, because again, this is a literary podcast and I have to sound somewhat smart. In what ways does the text foreshadow the, the outcome? How do you think the, the, the teen romance angle, love triangle is going to play out here? And what does the text sort of hint at, you think? Daniel? I mean, it's obvious that little Kathy is going to go for Harriton. Harriton is like the Schroeder in this scenario. And Linton is like <laughs> Linus, right? <laughs> so wait, wait, wait. Linton is like her brother then, is what you're saying. Are, yeah, he's, he's, well, he's, he's a cousin. I mean, I guess technically they're both cousins. But, you know, one's... Mm, one, she doesn't want to think of as a cousin. She doesn't want to think of Herdon as a cousin because he's like, you know, he's, he's pretty hot. Um, he's ripped. Yeah. I just want to interject for a second here. And just because Herdon is little Kathy's cousin, not necessarily a barrier to them getting married someday. And there might even be some reasons why that would be advantageous no no i'm not going to say too much to, because we might be getting into spoilery stuff but so i mean we already have a spoiler we know that harrington and kathy are not married because presumably the young man we met in chapter one is harrington oh yes yes we, we do know that and because her name is mrs heathcliff and she's not married to heathcliff we can deduce that the only other person with the name heathcliff is linton so she, he's gonna win the the cousin the battle of the cousins the battle of the kissing cousins yeah and like ding 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 um okay that's gonna be our that's gonna be the next episode's title anyway. <laughs> the battle of the kissing cousins jury did you have a hand up i uh i mean the kids are also because linton is male he uh he gets their stress branch right and that's part of why heathcliff wants him so Heathcliff, through Linton, he can also own the Pesquet. That is correct. Five points to jury for bringing up what is precisely the big fear about Linton and Kathy getting too close. So property law... Ugh. I can imagine being a reader, someone who's alive in Emily Bronte's times. Well, hopefully they're alive. And and going, ah, you know, I've been thinking about marrying my cousin, but I don't understand how the legal system works with, like, property laws and everything. And, and I, I got all these legal books, but they're so dry and boring to read. And his friend's like, I got you covered, man. I got this book, Wuthering Heights. <laughs> it's a story. It'll explain everything to you about cousins and property law. It's like, thanks, man. This this Emily Bronte, she's done the world a real service. 
Oh my god, that's what it was. It was like she was hired by like some lawyer to like <laughs> write it in like plain English for the uh, for the for common, his clients to understand. Yeah. We've got this book sus, Daniel. We figured it out. Yeah. Anyway, I feel like we've gotten a little bit off the mark. Let's talk about you know if you were drawing up Harriton and Linton, like who's the one who more exemplifies the sort of adolescent fantasy for Kathy. Put yourselves in the shoes of a sheltered 13-year-old girl in rural northern England in the mid-19th century. I mean, that's that's easy for me to say. Come on, Harrison's like, we've, we've, he's stacked. We've said this. He's a, he's a good-looking guy. He's a little bit older. Uh, he's, he's quite nice to her until she starts insulting him. Um, and I, I kind of think that, like, he's definitely someone who, who they, they, they definitely attachment could form there, but I think her, her thirteen-year-old like, oh, I want to be a princess, and live in a castle side is going to get the better of her. That's my prediction. Daniel, the only way I could imagine her going for Linton, and in, instead of Harriton, is if she has that same kind of thing as in Back to the Future, where she feels sorry for him, the way the mom in Back to the Future feels sorry for Marty. And by the way, I'm referring not to the movie Back to the Future, but the Sunday comic strip that ran for a few years <laughs> in the eighties. Daniel, I'm giving you five points minus one for that because you brought it back to Sunday comics at the end. But uh, I actually, yeah, I I think I'm here for that idea that there's an element of pity in how Kathy feels about Linton. So there is a phenomenon in Gothic literature that we that we call doubling, um, the Gothic double is a, a literary trope. Um, the idea that in Gothic literature, whether it is symbolic or sometimes literal, you will often find doubles of characters um, where we have either two characters with the same name or a character who learns that they have the same name as this other person in the past who turns out to be a ghost or that we have two people with similar names or there can be like confusion or like a mixed identity plot or sort of like a man in the iron mask situation where we have twins. I want to lay out a scenario here where Emily Bronte has quite organically brought about a very domestic sort of gothic doubling in the way she has set up young Catherine, so Catherine Linton the Younger, Harriton Earnshaw and Linton Heathcliff in a sort of love triangle that is not unlike Catherine Earnshaw, the elder, Heathcliff, and Edgar Linton. Because think of the, the, the parallels here. We have a flighty young woman named Catherine. We have someone who is living at Wuthering Heights, but is not ever going to inherit Wuthering Heights, and who is sort of devilishly handsome but rough around the edges and we have a sort of pale effeminate person with the name linton it's just the first name instead of the last name this time around and we're going to see again kathy choosing a linton except this time the linton is also a heathcliff when we get into the further subsequent chapters, which I'm going to call the teen romance portion of Wuthering Heights, this is all 
a pretty deliberate setup to evoke the same kind of drama that really kicked everything off. The fact that Catherine spurned Heathcliff, the rough-around-the-edges country boy who was never ever going to have any property of his own, so everyone believed, and choose the the the, the little wiener. Only this time, this is Heathcliff's revenge. And again, this is kind of spoilery, but I think we can all see where this is going. He's going to do what he can to engineer a situation where Kathy the Younger is going to be brought to the same decision and to do so in a way that replays his past to his to his benefit this time around. That's sort of where I want to leave the discussion. Emmy, I see you flagging. I know this is very late. Why don't we get on to the next segment of the show? I would, but the show's going long. So, the Bronte bite for this week. Since, <clears throat> excuse me, we talked about Hindley, who drank himself to death at age 27. Why don't we talk about the Bronte family member who drank himself to death? Um, and this is, of course, Branwell. I've alluded to Branwell and his disastrous career already a little bit, but today's Bronte bite is going to be a deeper dive into Branwell Bronte and his death. So Branwell Bronte was the only son. He was the only boy in the family. And he died at the tender age of 31 after a pretty sad little career. He was a painter, a portrait artist, and fancied himself a writer. He did some okay writing. Um, the problem is he was one of those writers who thought he was much better than he actually was and had an ego to match. He would submit letters to literary, to newspapers and magazines and not hear any responses back because like his, his writing just wasn't good enough. Like it wasn't high caliber enough. As a painter, he was all right, but just altogether temperamental and very much into the booze as his life went on in mediocrity. When he finally kicked the bucket in 1848, Branwell Bronte died of, and this is from Wikipedia, most likely due to tuberculosis, aggravated by delirium tremens, alcoholism, and laudanum and opium addiction. And when he died, he insisted, and this is from Elizabeth Gaskell's biography of Charlotte Bronte, Branwell Bronte, quote, wanting to show the power of the human will, decided to die standing up and quote from Gaskell, and when the last agony began, he insisted on assuming the position just mentioned. So last moments of his life, he was like, I am not sick. I will stand and face death like a man. And then apparently died standing up is, is how the story goes. Obviously, Emily didn't know that Branwell was so short for this world when she wrote the character of Hindley drinking himself into an early grave. But by that point, she knew that that was the course Branwell was taking. And Branwell's death hit Emily Bronte really hard. I, I almost wonder if we are perhaps, if, if this maybe invites us to consider Hindley in his final moments as much more sympathetic because Emily Bronte had intimate knowledge of what 
a life wasted by drinking yourself into severe illness and death looked like. I mean, severe illness at least, and then quite prophetically, um, an early death after Larry Heights was published. There's the upbeat Bronte bite! I promise I'll, I'll, I'll have a more fun Bronte bite. I'll have a much more fun one for next episode. This has been Bronte Bites, brought to you by Happy Flicks. It's like Netflix, except all the movies are happy. <laughs> I like that. I like that. All right, let's move on to the cathartic pop quiz. Let's keep this short and snippy. Okay, short, snappy cathartic pop quiz. Here we go. What kind of injury does Isabella have at the beginning of chapter 17? Emmy, you, you didn't raise your hand, but you pointed at it. So go ahead. She has like a, a, a thing on her temple. I'm giving you a point, but let's see if anyone can get more points for being more specific. Wasn't it her ear? You didn't raise your hand, Daniel. It's like it's like under or behind her ear, right? Yeah, she has a, she has a cut under the ear. My note for that was for fuck's sake, he throws a he throws a dinner knife at her head. Yeah. Four points for Daniel. What advice does Isabella give to Heathcliff? Uh, as a means of processing his grief over Catherine's death. What what words of comfort does Isabella give her grieving husband over the death of, of Catherine? Emmy? That uh, he should cry? A uh, little bit more specific than that. She gives some pretty specific instructions. I'll give you a hint. Oh, Jerry. Heathcliff, if I were you, I'd go stress myself over her grave and die like a faithful dog. Yep, five points for that, for bringing the exact line that I that, that I put as the answer. Yep, Heathcliff, if I were you, I'd go stretch myself over her grave and die like a faithful dog. This has to be like the hundredth dog reference in this fucking novel. There's so many dog references. Ugh. Let's um, continue the dog reference and also the cheerful, cheerful tenor of this wonderful novel. What's Harriton doing when Isabella knocks him over in her escape from Wuthering Heights? Daniel? He's hanging a bunch of puppies from the back of a chair. Yeah. Bear in mind that at this point in the narrative, Harriton is like five. Anyway, Daniel, I'm giving you two points for that. Not because it wasn't a good answer, but because I, it's too depressing to give any more than two points for, for that question. Um, it's okay, I don't want any points for that one. So how many more years does Isabella live after her escape? Andrew? Twelve. Exactly. Um, well, let's, let's make it more specific. Um, how many more years after Catherine's death does Isabella live? Because this one is explicitly measured out in the text. Daniel is holding up a card with the number 13 on it. Uh, listeners at home, you can't see that. But Daniel, you are correct. The quote that we're looking for here is, Fortunately, its mother died before the time arrived, some 13 years after the decease of Catherine, when Linton was 12 or a little more. So Isabella, after Catherine's death, limps on for 13 more years. Um, but Daniel, I'm only giving you one point for that because you did it via card, which our listeners cannot hear. What were you thinking? I was trying to throw the answer to someone else, but everyone else is asleep. Thank you, Daniel. So where does Heathcliff say Hindley should be buried? 
I'm waiting for Daniel's card now. Okay, Andrew. He says Henley should be buried at the crossroads. Okay. For one point, and can anyone tell me the significance of burying someone at a crossroads? Daniel. The crossroads is where you meet with the devil. Or the man in black. Especially if you want to sell your soul to learn how to play guitar real good. I'm giving you negative one point for that. Andrew. Okay, I, I think it's got something to do with, like, you bury people at the crossroads when you don't want their soul to find their way home. That's, that's the, that's like the, one of the superstitions about it. But what kinds of cases would get somebody Suicides. Buried? Bingo. Suicides. And I'll give you two more points for that. But yeah, uh, Heathcliff says correctly, he remarked, that fool's body should be buried at the crossroads without ceremony of any kind. I happened to leave him ten minutes yesterday afternoon, and in that interval he fastened the two doors of the house against me and has spent the night in drinking himself to death deliberately, intimating that it was an actual suicide. Okay, so... On the day that Kathy runs off to uh, the fairy cave, what does she pretend to be doing to fool Nellie? Daniel? Going for a pony ride? Zero points. That's kind of... Yeah, Andrew? Pretending to be an Arabian caravan. <laughs> and so she gets Nellie to pack her a bunch of extra stuff which she's going to need for the, her what she's really doing. That is correct. Uh, for three points, Andrew, um, Catherine came to me one morning at eight o'clock and said that she was that day an Arabian merchant going to cross the desert with his caravan, and I must give her plenty of provision for herself and beasts, a horse and three camels, personated by a large hound and a couple of pointers. Now, next question. Who is the fiercest of the pointers? Andrew? I'm just gonna. I'm flipping this coin. It's Charlie. It is Charlie, uh, but since you'd coin flipped it, I'm just gonna give you one point. Yes, Charlie is the fiercest of the pointers. It says right in the text, Charlie, the fiercest of the pointers. Harriton opens the mysteries of what to Kathy, and we're looking for the exact phrase here. Also, Andrew and Daniel, you've answered a bunch of questions this time around. I'm gonna give Jury and Emily first crack at the uh, at this one. Oh, don't wake them up, though. <laughs> I'm trying really hard. What was the question? Sorry. Harriton <laughs> opens the mysteries of what to Kathy? Fairy cave and 20 other queer places. That's the one. The for, title of the show. For four points. Forgetting the exact quote. Yes, title of the show. Well, of this episode. And what is Linton's complaint when he is seated by the table? In chapter 19, when they seat him by the table. Andrew? He can't sit on a chair, is what he says. I'm like, he's a bit young for hemorrhoids. <laughs> I can't sit on a chair. Yeah, I'll give, I'll give you a point for that. I can't sit on a chair... In case, in case Linton was not already pathetic enough. I can't sit on a chair. Though, I, I mean, if, to do him credit, if you're sick and you've just had a long carriage ride from London to Yorkshire, you'd probably want to just go straight to bed, too. 
Yeah, and just I would that kind of behavior is something I'd expect from like a seven-year-old, not a twelve-year-old. Yeah, but Linton is sort of a little wiener. I mean, I think this book was ahead of its time because, as we all know now, chairs are death. You got to get those standing desks. <laughs> sit on a yoga ball. Chairs are horrible for you. I can't sit on a chair. I need a yoga ball. Somewhere, Branwell Bronte is just just shaking his fist at Linton. Like, <laughs> I died standing up and you can't sit on a fucking chair? No. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to tabulate your scores. Okay, folks, we have another tie for Teacher's Pet. Um, coming in with 16 points each, uh, Andrew and Daniel. In second place with 13 points, Judy and Emmy. A little bit too sleepy for this one. You got 10 points and you're putting on the dunce cap. Sounds good. I deserve it. <laughs> should I do a tiebreaker question? Like a really quick one or? No, we should just fight for it. Like a good old, good old William Shatner monster fight with that music. Dun, 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 dun. No, I guess, yeah, that'd be a bit hard. I can't actually, we can't actually punch each other in this We're just going to end up here. punching our own computer screens. <laughs> I think that might be a tiebreaker. <laughs> Who's dumb enough to do that? <laughs> anyway, so I guess for this one, the two of you can uh, choose, can work out together which uh, homework assignment you want to to pick for. Now, who's eligible? Yeah, it's between um, you and Daniel, Emmy. Uh, Emmy, heads or tails? Heads. Heads it is. Emmy, you are doing the uh, homework. You're doing the reader response next episode. And Andrew, Daniel, want to pick something for her? I kind of like spooky campfire story. Oh, spooky campfire story. Yeah, that works. Yeah, Emmy's probably been to a lot of, to a lot of campfires. I secretly was a girl guide for 13 years of my life. <laughs> they, they let you be a secret girl guide? It was more that I was, was hiding that identity from anybody. Oh, <laughs> oh, I see. Uh, I thought you had some, like, secret Girl Scout cookies. I was <gasps> like, oh, where can I get some of those? Next episode, Emmy will be giving the report on the chapters we're reading in the form of... A spooky campfire story. And Charlotte, tell us what chapters we're going to be reading. Well, I was thinking that for the next episode, uh, just to speed things along, um, we're going to do four chapters. So chapters 20, 21, 22, 23. So uh, I guess that folds our sixth episode into a paper airplane. Uh, I'd like to thank our expert Charlotte Sampson for walking us through another three chapters of this very odd book. Thank you. Uh, I would be... You're welcome. Uh, thank you. I would be remiss if I failed to thank my fellow readers who are... Next time I should list you guys in order of wakefulness. Um, uh, my fellow readers, Daniel Wishes, Emmy Doe, and Judy Ito. Thanks to Rio Namigaya for plugging away on the admin side of YTG stuff. Also thanks to Arden Akihiro Akane for composing our theme tune. The show is edited by me. Uh, and finally, thanks to you, our listeners. Tell your friends, and let's see if we can get to a baker's dozen by episode 50. If you want to support the podcast, head over to the Oklahoma Theatre Group webpage at ytg.jp and click the support button to make a one-time donation. Or better yet, at this point, leave a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast platform of your choice. Only five-star reviews will do. Seriously, people see a four-star review and they'll assume the entire podcast is us just heavy breathing over a photo of Jordan B. Peterson. And finally... 
Thanks to Emily Bronte, who, while not the most huggable Bronte, was surely the best drag racer of the bunch. Change my mind, people. Change my mind. We'll be back soon for episode seven. Check the show notes. See you then. Class dismissed. While she's uh, tabulating, should we talk about which character from Friends we think each character from Wuthering Heights is? <laughs> Heathcliff is definitely the the, Sha- the Chandler, right? Am I right? Such a Chandler. Sure, I guess. <laughs> that was David Schwimmer, right? No. What was his name? Matthew Perry? Yes, that's correct. I'm not surprised you haven't seen the show, Andrew. It wasn't very popular. (laughs) (laughs) Not popular at all. Okay, can I just say one thing? I am horrible at impersonations. Like, it is, like, not... It's, like, it's so... I can't even impersonate Trump. And that's, like, the easiest impersonation to do. So, like... Mm. Just I think for- your impersonations are tremendous. <laughs> As Andrew just proved, it's not that easy. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> This podcast is copyright 2020, the Yokohama Theater Group. Our theme song was written by Akihiro Akane and is used with his permission.